Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. It is great to be back with you. Who's ready for Christmas, for the Christmas season? I know we've kind of been living in it since November 1st with the lights and the joy that the lights bring. We talked about that a little bit a couple weeks ago with Father Robert Spitzer. We've been in the middle of this series on the four weeks of Advent, the various themes. So we started with hope. We moved into peace. We moved into joy. And now that fourth week of Advent that seems so short, just a couple of days, we are talking about the theme of love, Caritas. And, you know, it's so interesting because I'm wanting to do a episode on this. It seems so cheesy. Like, I don't even want to name it love. You know, I want to use, you know, the Greek or the Latin. Sure. We're going to dive into that. With me to talk about that word Caritas, agape. We'll talk about Eros and all these other elements is Dr. Philip Chavez of the Men's Academy. Yeah, it's good to be here. Um, Tim Marie, again, thank you for, for inviting me. And yeah, I'm looking forward to discussion on love. And um, yeah, the Men's Academy, we just talked about the fullness of masculine development and, and what it means really to be the fully developed male, both humanly and spiritually. So you are an expert in character formation. It's what you did, your doctoral work. It's what That's you're right. doing with men. And so I love that we have the opportunity. Love. Let's see how many times I can throw it in there. Uh, the wrong type of love. You know, we always say the word love, throwing it around easily, but we don't really think about how we use it sometimes. Uh, but I like talking about the virtues with you sure. because we can go a little bit deeper here. Before we go there, why are we doing this series? If you've not been listening, does it matter if it's Advent or not? We're always preparing for the coming of Christ in the Eucharist. We're preparing for the coming of Christ at Christmas time, you know, reliving that coming of Christ, reliving the infancy narrative. But we're also always preparing for his second coming. That's right. Yeah, and we, we have what's called the universal judgment and the other particular judgment. I mean, there's someday God's going to stand before us all, and all the universe can be before him, and there's going to be another occasion where we all each have our own individual judgment. And so in the preparation for Christmas, which were to be prepared for Christ, really it's about preparation for for those other two events that are going to be cosmic in our lives. You know, I always feel like when we talk about Christmas and the preparation for Christ, we forget that one of his major messages was the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's right. Now Christ has come. Are we acting that way? And that's why I think sometimes it helps if, you know, we go to receive the Eucharist more than just on Sundays because we kind of have that perspective maybe day to day. You know, we check, are we predisposed to receive our Lord in the Eucharist? Are we doing our examination of conscience? You can kind of live a perpetual Advent, a perpetual Lent in a sense, if you're taking on maybe uh, having a devotion to the Eucharist. 
But even then, we can go through the motions and forget that there's preparation in our hearts that needs to take place, not only to receive him worthily in the Eucharist, but to really kind of weed out those imperfections to be with him in heaven. And it's only by his grace that this can be done. That's right. And I think it's important as we're trying to reach into a life by which we want to be worthy of Christ, worthy of reception, worthy of heaven, is in some way remember that Christ just didn't come on earth so that we can go to heaven someday. He came on earth so heaven can come inside us. And so what he wants to do is give us power within. He wants to show us he's already present within, that he's active, and that we should have confidence and faith that that activity by which he wants to incorporate himself in our lives gives us strength to accomplish all that we need to. I want to do a love evaluation here for just a second. Sounds interesting. Let's talk about this here. I'm not going to evaluate your love life. Don't worry. That's not (laughs) where we're going with this. Uh, You know, that's why, again, I didn't want to title this episode Love because it's just uh, too much for me. If you're listening to Trending with Tim Ray, we're in our Advent series uh, talking about that fourth week of Advent. And we use different words for love. You know, I might say I love my dog. I might say I love my husband. I might say I love my mom. I might say that I love my faith. All of these. Love cornflakes. Love cornflakes. You know, all of these are different types of love. And I think that sometimes the English language limits us a little bit when we talk about it. Very much. Uh, So we get to geek out here for a little bit and talk about some of the words for love. And I'm going to focus on three. You might throw in some others that you want to talk about. Um, One of them is a love of passion, right? I might be really passionate about eating. Eating chocolate. I haven't had it in like six months. I can't wait to have some uh, some chocolate soon. I'm really passionate about it. And that is a word, and we can talk about it more, eros, a passion. But usually eros isn't just passion for something like chocolate. It could be a sensual passion as well. It could be passion that you might experience for your boyfriend or girlfriend uh, that is leading toward a sexual type of passion. But you might, you may or may not be acting on it. You may or may not be able to control your thoughts. Eros, having passion, is a good thing. That's right. And sometimes people get it wrong. And I've even heard priests where I'm like cringing when they say passion, eros is bad. Because eros is good. It's just not perfect. That's right. It's, it's, and every every drive we have ultimately is is inclined towards some good, and that drive can be misdirected. So that drive that you were talking about, that eros, in terms of, of the passions, whether sensual or even the things that you do, um, those are those are good drives to 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 consummate um, um, the achievement of certain goods, especially if they're valid. But it, it's easily, we, especially given our fallen nature, of course, that that those passions, especially with the more the stronger they get the more easily they can to be misdirected. And so this is where, in our own formation process, yeah, we should always, you know, as parents need to train their children, we need to be aware ourselves that when these we, these higher emotions or these higher passions, the stronger they are, the more we do need to bring them to some kind of control. Another word for love, which is used in the Greek, is philia. A word that kind of has to do with a brotherly love, like a a familiar type of love, you know. So the way I love my brother, for example, is different than I might love my husband. At the same time, though, that familial love I should still have for my husband, right? That's right. That brotherly love, that camaraderie. It's a friendship type of love. You know who's Mm -hmm. really great at this is my husband. He makes awesome friendships at work always. It's a strength that he has. He always just makes really good friendships, a very fraternal type of friendship. Sure. And, you know, this love is even greater than that passion love, but it's still not perfect. That's right. And so, but but in this case, remember the passion love has has its end in, in consummating good for one's own sake. 
But in friendship, as you're pointing out, in this philia, um, it's actually a love for the person's sake who you're loving. So one of the reasons why, you know, Gabe is probably good with making friends, you know, he, he comes to love them, but he loves them for their sake. He loves them for their good. And, um, and that's, so that's where that love of friendship, the philia love comes from. I love that. And I've not actually heard that perspective. So Eros, that Eros, more so for your own sake, that passion. And that's why people sometimes say that it's wrong because it's seeking your own pleasure in a sense. There's nothing wrong with wanting to enjoy something. That's right. But it can become disordered. And there's there's just certain goods that we do need to um, imbibe just to, to lead a healthy, wholesome life as well. So, and then philia, we're coming, kind of coming back to a view as well. It's that brotherly friendship type of love. And you said that orients a step further. It's going toward another person's sake. And I love when you That's look right. at, um, we're going to break down Aristotle's different types of friendships, because I think this ties into it as well. Uh, he talks about how there are three types of friendships. You know, the, there's a friendship of utility, where the basis of your friendship is how the other person is useful to you. And when exactly. the usefulness mm-hmm. is gone, say, you can't give me a ride to work, say, you know, you become poor and you can't take me out to dinner all the time, you know, whatever it might be. You know, I no longer have any use for you, so sure. our friendship's gone. That's one type of friendship. And he talks about this in Nic- the Nicomachean Ethics. And then there's a friendship of pleasure where uh, our friendship is only based on how pleasurable you are to me. We could say that a lot of um, dating relationships are very centered around emotional pleasure sure. and physical pleasure, even food pleasure, you know, going out and having fun. And when maybe someone's not as pleasurable in one of those areas, boom, the, the relationship's gone. Sure. But then there's that third type of friendship, that friendship of virtue that Aristotle talks about, which also I think that some of this we could look to Thomas Aquinas. We could look even to St. John of the Cross and really the tradition of the church and how this friendship of virtue is where you're willing the good of the other. You're seeing right. that other person as coming first before yourself. And, you know, St. John of the Cross will talk about how or I think it's in uh, John Chrysostom that I'm thinking of. He talks about in a good friendship, for example, in marriage, there's like a bridge that comes between the two people. And he gives the example of like the Holy Spirit is that bridge that in a true friendship, you have a common mm-hmm. mission. Sure. Yeah. And so and so that's that's where uh, ultimately where uh, friendship should be directed to is to one of virtue, you know. And so, by the way, and so it, it is not wrong to say, you know, that, that friendship of utility and friendship of pleasure is also valid because those also have val- valid ends as well. You know, a friendship of utility, one could uh, have a mechanic that he has a friendship with that works well, but but it's really just on that level. But it's good. We all want a good mechanic. But but again, the friendship of virtue is, is the highest is the highest order of those natural friendships. And, and that's to which is to be inculcated. And I think that also when we're talking about the friendship of utility and pleasure, that as you say, there can be goods there. It's how we handle it, though. Are we treating someone abusively? Are we just right. limiting them to what they're useful for or pleasurable for? Because there's nothing wrong with having, you know, friendships that aren't as deep as other friendships. Sure. In fact, sometimes these are the friendships where we can have a great influence just by being a good person and maybe engaging in some of the activities like going bowling and playing tennis that they sure. like to engage in. Uh, but maybe there aren't a lot of opportunities to go deeper into that common mission in those friendships. And this poses why the friendship of virtue is also important, because there's going to be a deep-seated loneliness if you don't start to have friendships that are oriented toward a similar mission, which I think ultimately kind of leads us back to our third Greek word for a definition of love, and that's agape. 
let's talk about this a little bit. Do you want to define agape? Wow, I didn't come ready to do that. Well, in some <laughs> way, it's it's that love which loves one another in some way with a focus on that higher end or that higher um, that higher vision for God. So in that, in agape, we're approaching charity. Yeah, when we look at agape, I mean, this is where we start to think of the home coming into context as well, where we start to, you know, we refer to the love of Christ for his church and that self-giving aspect. We talk about even the home is a small church, the domestic church, right? It is in these familial relationships, first and foremost, modeled off of the Trinity, that we learn ultimately what is life-giving, self-giving love. That's right. And I think that's what's so transformative in our culture right now that St. John Paul the Great and his theology of the body has re-explained for us yet again the tradition of the church and what agape is and what love actually is. Also, you know, Pope Benedict XVI just, you know, earlier at the beginning of this century talking about uh, love. He has the writing uh, Deus Caritas S. God is love. You know, this is one of those ideas that we struggle with as Christians. By the way, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Trending with Tim Ray. That is Dr. Philip Chavez of the Men's Academy. One of the reasons why I say we sometimes struggle with this as Christians is we need to define agape better. It's ultimately the love of God. It's the love that God has for us that is so perfect, so serving in the other person. It gives absolutely everything, holding nothing back. But that's hard to kind of begin to process unless we look at examples such as the cross Or unless we kind of go back to a human anthropology and we go back to the garden, for example, and this is what theology of the body does so well. It goes back and it says, let's look to the origin of the human person. Adam's alone in the garden. He's looking at all of creation. He's looking at the plants. He's looking at the animals. He sees all of these different things and he's recognizing, I can't really communicate myself to you. Um, I can take some delight, right, in looking at creation, you sure. know, in, you know, the simplicity of the companionship of an animal, right? But there's something missing. And we hear God says that it's not good that man should be alone and God creates Eve. And Adam sees even that moment. This is the, the theology of the body. He sees her and before he goes, ah, finally, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He saw that all of the created order not only could communicate itself better to one another in terms of the animal and the plants and how they were just happy being. But he wasn't just happy being. He needed someone to communicate himself to. That's right. And so this is where we reveal on a biological level, a deeper spiritual reality. Adam and Eve understand in the garden, their biological complementarity, their physiological complementarity orients that their whole body is meant to be a gift. That's right. On a physical level, the bodies are like a key and a lock, right? The physical aspect of theology of the body. But that reveals a deeper spiritual reality. My whole life, not just my body, is meant to be a gift, just as God is a gift on the cross. That's right. And and what's that supposed to lead to is, is a complete self-giving of the other. And so what, what, what Adam saw in Eve was somebody that he could completely surrender to like his own body. He could be so connected, so intimately united with that. And again, I think this is what, what agape does. It, it taps into what's deepest in our human nature, I think, and that is to sacrifice, to fully give of oneself. It's so easy to see that in women who find a great delight in self-giving to their children, being very sacrificial to them. And I think in some way this is the priest in all of us. The priest is called ultimately to sacrifice 
It's the priesthood of lay faithful, and it consummates something deep within the human person that we know internally we're supposed to give ourselves to to others, and not just to serve the common good in some universal way, which is fine and great works, but to really give ourselves an interpersonal communion and to sacrifice for others who we know and we love, who we're in very proximate relationships with. That's what makes life enriching. Amen to that. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray. That is Dr. Philip Chavez of the Men's Academy. This whole episode is about the fourth week of Advent, that theme, that virtue of love. We're going to continue to unpack it, give examples and stories, and give some of the catechesis of the church on love. I want to look at a contradiction or a few contradictions we see in the culture to the idea of love, of that self-giving love, of that caritas, right, in the Latin agape, as we say, or even of that philia, you know, philia, that brotherly love that we talk about, or even the love of passion. We're seeing that right now there was an article that came out from Bloomberg, and the headline is this, this, Earth needs fewer people to beat the climate crisis, scientists say. Here's what they say. 11,000 experts have signed an emergency declaration warning that energy, food, and reproduction must change immediately. That's right. They're saying reproduction. You guys, people are saying that it is necessary not only for there to be fewer humans, but for us to reduce the number of humans that are coming into existence. And I actually am going to take that back. Not just fewer humans that are coming into existence, fewer humans that are born. They're saying we need population control, essentially abortion, contraception. I bring this up as a contradiction to love because scientists are saying we need fewer people. We need less interactions with humans. We need to sacrifice our bodies and our biochemical makeup on the altar of the earth, right? On the altar of worshiping the earth on essentially that abortion table in order for us to have, you know, a smaller carbon footprint. I mean, we could go on on, and this is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, and this really in some way, in some way, on one dimension of this, it stems from the lack of seeing the dignity of persons and coming to love persons. And more and more seeing, you know, nature as some kind of reality, which we're supposed to uphold above all things. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, I think their causation is, is mistaken, too, as, as well as seeing these things as contributing to, the you know, destruction of the earth. I think there's a lot of error on, on many different levels there. But ultimately, there's um, a leaning away from the dignity of persons and true virtue, or the true, you know, the philia that you're talking about. And more and more, it's seeing everything in light of utility. Well, the human beings aren't really helping because, you know, they're, they're consumers, they're using fossil fuels, they're eating meat and all these other ridiculous things for which is destroying the, the universe, is destroying the earth. And so, so we're looking just um, at people as just as uh, or a friendship of utility, where they're just cogs in a wheel through which get us to a certain good state on earth. And that's really not what human beings are, are oriented toward. They're, they're oriented toward a higher end to God. And there's a dignity in that, which is, which is lost in these, with these scientists. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray. That is Dr. Philip Chavez of the Men's Academy. You can learn more about him, his work, get connected with his podcast, even some of his books. If you head over to radiotrending.com under the guest tab, and you can, again, get connected with all of Dr. Chavez's incredible work at the Men's Academy. You can also share episodes to Trending there. Just head over to radiotrending.com. As we're talking about this call of the scientists to really kind of end 
having as many people on the earth, essentially. They're saying we need population control, which is fascinating. We were talking about population control earlier in the year here on Trending. Even, I mean, smart people who can look at this and see we do not have a population problem. We have a population problem with older people and the fact that there are fewer people coming up behind the older generations to pay into Social Security, to care for the elderly. I mean, Japan... We're starting to see this in China. We're seeing this all over Asia. We're starting to see it in parts of Europe and the Western world as well. I mean, people are not there to help care for the older generations because we have so few young people because they have been aborted away, contracepted away. And so here's what I think it ultimately comes down to. Love is being destroyed by four key things. And there are a lot that we could say, but these are the four that are standing out to me right now. Materialism modernism, relativism, and hedonism. Let's start with that first one. We've already kind of touched on it. Materialism. We've reduced, on one side, we've reduced ourselves as human persons to what is material. So the soul no longer matters. And so if the soul doesn't matter, I don't have to love myself. I don't have to love others. God doesn't even love me. How would I know love? But also materialism from the perspective, I guess there are three, materialism from the perspective of parents who are now kind of engaging in this consumer baby having through in vitro Mm. fertilization and gene editing. But then finally, we allow our whole life to be directed by what kind of consumer we want to be and what we want, what we have. And we reduce the love to the love of the objects that surround us in our home. That's right. And so there's a lack of dignity, lack of uh, seeing the dignity within others. But again, I, I can't help but think that there's some primal element in that. You know, we fail to see the dignity in others when we can't even see the dignity within ourselves. Mm-hmm. And or the more, more so with Christians and Catholics, uh, there's something about connecting with that dignity of Christ within you that's going to help navigate our love and properly direct us to, to love others and witness to others and, and give to others that we're called to do. How do you see love destroyed by modernism? Modernism is a strange word because I think it's used for a lot of a lot of different types of error. Right. Okay, so, but I think in, in some primal ways the church used it in about a hundred years ago from this year uh, under Pius X is something about the reality of seeing things in light of just personal experience that there's really no objective reality, and so this touches you know a faith life that our faith life really. You know, Catholicism isn't really uh, hinged upon any real realities that happen. It's just some almost a circumstantial kind of religion, which, well, is probably as good as another. But it's just it's the reality I've come to embrace, so to speak, or or it becomes my reality. And so I think what happens when we see everything in light of personal experience, we'll, we'll begin to judge and assess all human beings in light of you know, instead of seeing the dignity within them, we'll just see them, well, you know, Timory's nice to me, so I can tolerate her, so I'll be nice back. If she's not, well, I'll, I'll somewhat disregard her. So instead of seeing you in terms of just the dignity within you, I'll just see you in terms of, well, are you in a good mood today, or, or are you nice and pleasant to be around with, instead mm-hmm. of, again, the dignity within you. And that's interesting because ultimately it's what ushers in relativism because modernism, I think, really hits on, well, there is really no objective truth. Sure. So I'm going to be led by feelings, which ushers in relativism. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. So if there is no truth, I can define things as I wish. And so I think, again, relativism destroys love because, well, modernism destroyed love because it says, well, there's no true way to love. There's nothing that is fundamental to loving. I may be 
quote unquote love people out of obligation or whatever it might be. But in relativism, I only love what I choose to love. For example, this theme of going no contact that we hear about of young people completely cutting off their parents. Well, I'm choosing not to love you because I feel like you did not love me. I feel like I do not have to love you. And therefore, you know, I'm just going to shut you off and do my own thing and ask you not to contact me. And these people think, yeah, my parents shouldn't contact me ever again. I mean, it's just atrocious to even think that we've disconnected ourselves so far that, well, this is my truth. Therefore, I should never hear from this person again. Right. So the idea that, well, I'm free to direct my love wherever I want to. So it's not my parents this week, or maybe it shouldn't be my parents for the rest of my life. So I'll just direct it to my friends or to wife or whatnot. And so, yeah, you can see how there's no real concrete um, establishment of relationship for which love should be based upon because we, we love mostly in relationship. The last type of uh, really idea that in our culture that I think is destroying love is hedonism. We're completely driven by pleasure. And so we don't care about even loving ourselves or others. We even think pleasure in a sense is self-love. We also kind of assume, well, if I think this is pleasurable, you should be loving it too. And something we're seeing in sexual relationships, something we're seeing in just, you know, following whatever you desire. Sure. And flowing with a wind and forgetting where other people might be and forgetting to bring them into the fold of our day-to-day life. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory. We are back. I'm here with my guest, Dr. Philip Chavez, and we're talking about the theme of love, caritas, eros, agape, philia. We were defining at the beginning of the show the different words and other languages for love. Caritas would be the Latin word for love. Again, getting into that self-giving love of God. If you haven't been with us, you missed the first 25 minutes kind of establishing that. You can head over to radiotrending.com to catch the beginning of this episode or share it as well. I want to talk now, Dr. Chavez, about the cross as the model for love. Now, I want to talk about it from two perspectives. Sure. Both from Christ's perspective, but also let's pull back and talk about it from the perspective of Our Lady as well. So we have in the tradition of the church, if you don't know them, the seven sorrows of Our Lady. Before we dive into that, you'll see why I think this really does tie into love the theme of love and the virtue of love. When I think of kind of a modern day example of looking to the cross as our path to salvation, looking to the cross as ultimately the gift that we've received, but also in uniting ourselves to that cross, I think of St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross, also known as Edith Stein. She died during World War II at Auschwitz. And she always uses this phrase over and over again when you read her about how our life essentially has to be fastened to the cross. And she literally talks about fastening yourself to the cross, becoming attached onto the cross. And when you really think about that, that's quite morbid. It's not just saying pick up your cross. So it's saying, okay, feel the, the... I want to say thorns, but the thorns on your head, feel the nails through your hands, feel the nails through your feet, feel yourself hanging limp on the cross as the nails are pulling your skin down, the weight of your body is yanking. 
That's what she's saying to do, to literally fasten yourself onto the cross that Christ is on. And when I think about that, I think of Our Lady and her seven sorrows and how she endured the cross with her son. That's right. And of course, what you're doing there, Timory, when you do that, you're making that very personal. You know, sometimes in Catholic uh, spirituality, we've got to be very careful when we talk about, you know, fastening ourselves to the cross without really that, not just imagery, but that reality of immersing that we're, we're doing that because we're incorporating ourselves into the person of Christ, right? So that's really the experience of Christ, which he invites us into, to also be fastened across, not just with him, but through him, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're able to, and like others, you know, when they could take, especially as a woman, you could take that that cross that the Blessed Mother bore, you know, in her life on earth through those seven sorrows. And um, and in that way, you can, you can make it personal because if we make suffering impersonal and just because it has merit or whatnot, it directs us into certain directions or we learn lessons from it or grow in virtue. In some way, we almost extricate that from, I think, the true spirit of Christianity. Mm, where you're saying we abuse suffering rather than uniting ourselves to it. So we just try to see what we can get out of the suffering. Oh, yeah, it, it, that's right. We'll just see what we can get out of the suffering or some effect that that may have maybe for the remission of sins or the penalty of sins instead of seeing it as incorporated into Jesus Christ. And then we could do it out of love. Yeah. Right. And so you could do this through again with the, 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 the cross of the Blessed Mother. We incorporate that through here. There's a spirit and an offering of doing these things, but it's in, in love. I think of two people I'm reading right now, St. Teresa of Avila and the Way of Perfection and also Cardinal Seurat. And you kind of compare two things that they're talking about. They talk about suffering and how suffering is so fundamental to contemplation and our journey of being united to God. And so I could see where people think, okay, if I pray, suffer and pray 20 rosaries for this intention for the souls in purgatory, we're kind of focusing too much on what we're getting out of things or sometimes too much on what we're trying to give in to something, essentially, what we're trying to do to kind of create this idea of a, a savior complex, you know what I mean? Trying to save the world, trying to save individuals. Yet at the same time, what you're emphasizing is that when St. Edith Stein and others are saying, fasten yourself to the cross, follow the way of the cross, pick up your cross and follow me, as Christ says, it's to be united to whatever suffering you might be offered, not just to try and um, offer it up from the perspective. What can I do? What can I get? What can I give? Yeah. Or or I guess what I'm trying to drill down to is, is the focus should be that we do it through the person, like we do it through and in Christ. Because in that way, it becomes a more of a loving act because love is found in relationship, right? And so when we suffer, we should see even suffering in a relationship. In, in Jesus Christ or in the Blessed Mother, as you're trying to direct this to. You're listening to Trending with Timory. That is Dr. Philip Chavez of the Men's Academy. So let's talk about this from the perspective of the seven sorrows of Our Lady. We're not going to run super in-depth through them, but part of the seven sorrows uh, are things such as the prophecy of Simeon, saying the sword will pierce Mary's heart. Another would be you know, the fact that as a new mom with this newborn baby and Joseph, they have to flee to Egypt. Things such as, again, we won't go through all of them, but the meeting of Jesus on the way of the cross. When Jesus is taken down from the cross and placed in Our Lady's arms, the burial of Jesus, all of these things are deep sorrows that Our Lady endures. That's right. And from the perspective of our theme of love, she chooses to endure it. She doesn't fail in enduring it. She has a love that is enduring and constant to the very end 
just as Christ's love is enduring and constant to the very end of fully allowing his life to be taken and ended on the cross. Yeah, and she sees these enduring things in uniting them with her son and for the sake of her son and in union with his mission, right? So all of these these mysteries of her sorrows are intimately connected with hers. In fact, she probably even saw them not just as her sorrows, but really as his sorrows, right? Mm-hmm. And so even even every action that she had, you know, she sees this all in him and through him and with him. You know, I remember when I... I broke my shoulder through an accident last September. I tried to never see that broken shoulder apart from Christ's wound on the cross. And that really helped me um, really navigate that the way it should. And so I think it's possible with Christ and the Blessed Mother, every suffering that we bear, we could see that as something that they have suffered first, or there's a suffering that they've had for which they're passing on to us through which we bear um, in and through Christ and in and through the Blessed Mother. There are times where I think people say, okay, of course you're using Our Lady as an example. Of course you're using Christ on the cross as an example. But I think that Our Lady as an example sometimes is a little more palatable when we think about it. I mean, the real experience of having to flee with, you know, a new marriage, a new baby being so young, the reality of losing your child in the temple and for three days not knowing where your 12-year-old child is, the reality of having your only son placed in your arms, watching him be brutally beaten. I mean, all of these things, you guys, don't just hear the story, live it and meditate on it. You think about what was endured. You think about hanging on that cross, as I talked about earlier. Suddenly that doesn't just become a story. It becomes a meditation. And then it can become contemplation that you enter yourself into that mystery. That's right. And and certainly easy for men and especially women, when we, we unite that suffering or understand it in light of our own child, if there's anything that we're more attuned to in terms of what we love and our human affection, human connection, is, is our own children, right? And so this Blessed Mother provides an excellent example of how even, which, you know, as you find that mothers find most of their suffering, usually within the relationships with their children, um, we can more relate to that and to see and see that relationship which she had through Christ, but how she, she endured the cross and lived in the cross through a relationship with the Christ child himself. Amen. I want to look from the perspective of Christ as well and the humility that God has in coming as a little child. You know, we talk about love and this a theme right now in the fourth week of Advent that and I think about his innocence and that choosing to come in all humility and how Christ's innocence is still intact both in the moment of his birth and in the moment of his crucifixion. God doesn't change. Christ doesn't change. And that's part of what makes that sacrifice so great is that there's that purity in Christ and his sacrifice. And when we talk about, you know, earlier in the show doing the quote unquote love evaluation of understanding what love is, this is kind of what I think it's coming to. Are we allowing for our love to become innocent, to become pure, to become oriented toward the other? Are we allowing for ourselves to love ourselves? Are we allowing for God's love to penetrate us? Are we allowing even for the dependency of Christ that he shows in becoming a little child? Are we allowing for that dependence on Christ? Yeah, it's interesting. 
it's uh, St. Catherine of Siena, when she talked about uh, the sufferings of Christ, she talked about in light of his shame, in light of his humility, in light of his physical suffering. But we show our love and conformity with the cross and in unity with Christ when we do offer up those episodes by which we experience shame. That is, we can't perform the way we otherwise want to, and so there's shame or there's humility as opposed to our pride. And so our Lord, when he invites us into him, as he invites us into the mysteries of his his infancy, he invites us into a deep humility by which God becoming man, when you really think about it, it's just an awesome thing. The creator of the universe would, would take upon the hand of a little baby. And all that the master, the creator of the universe, would put himself in such a vulnerable position to be subject, in fact, in such a bitter way by the creation which he created. Oh, absolutely. And you look at the power of that witness. What are we called to become? We're called to become that little Christ. That is the path of love. We see it on the cross that is bloody, bruised, and beaten. We see it in our lady's journey as well. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast where you can share your favorite episodes. You're listening to Trending with Timory. We've been talking about the power of the cross in our lives. We've been talking about it as the model of love in this last segment, we were talking all about looking to the cross, both from the perspective of Our Lady, but then also from the perspective of Christ. And Dr. Chavez, you were saying how we have to look at the cross from the perspective of the greatest act of love, as you were saying. Yes, what, but I, I think it's very important that we act, we, we, we look and approach the cross and suffering in and through Christ. Because if we make it just about suffering and the merits of suffering, and that can actually be driven to very, something very impersonal where I think we're called, especially in charity, to see that in Christ. And so our own crosses, we should see as Christ's, all, all of our crosses, we should see actually it's something Christ already endured in a paradigm Christ already followed. Let's talk about the virtue of love, right? So we talk about the three theological virtues. In fact, we've already talked about one of them this Advent, that is hope. So we have faith, hope, and love. What is so great about this whole conversation to take a little bit of weight off of your shoulders, but in fact, that's the whole Catholic tradition. Stop putting the weight on your own shoulders. Mm, sure. The, the theological virtue is not something you can just attain on your own. That's right. It's a gift from God. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit given to us to live. And so you're hearing all of this and you're saying, man, I'm having a hard time. I mean, think about those words of St. Edith Stein, fasten yourself to the cross I don't know how to do that. We'll pray for the gift of caritas, right? That Latin word for love. Pray for the gift of charity so that you can fasten yourself to the cross, so that you can be better in seeing the good of the other person, seeking after the good of the other person in your friendships. The virtue is something that we can practice elements on a practical level, but we're orienting ourselves also to being being open to the gift of caritas. That's right. And I think, I think, Timory, that gift of caritas needs to in some way be distinguished from the, that supernatural infused virtue of charity. It's true in caritas, it's a supernatural act where, where we love God and all things in God. But in that supernatural virtue that's, in, that's infused, it's that gifting through the Spirit by which we come to love God above all things for his sake. And I think then the consequent suffering which we suffer in caritas is that it's suffered for God and in God, and we could say even through God, but it's because we put him above all things 
that suffering really is able to be endured. Because if we look at it for our sake, um, it's going it, to we, we can't endure that. You know, I think one way to make ourselves predisposed to receiving our Lord in such a way is to follow the. Um, oh my gosh, the word just slipped out of my mind. The three councils of the church. Am I using the right word right now? Poverty, chastity, and obedience. Sure. Yeah, to really follow and lead these. You know, when we do not make ourselves spiritually poor and sometimes physically poor from the perspective of detaching from things, not sure. that, you know, because people who have money can still be det- detached. That's hard. They can. But it is 100% possible. Some of the most generous people I know are people who are very wealthy, but have learned to be detached. And so my challenge to you is what is necessary for you to detach from? You know, I was reading Cardinal Sarajas the other morning. He was talking about what's superfluous, essentially, that's making it so that you are not spiritually poor. What are you allowing into your life that's too much? What is that that's preventing you from following these three councils of the church of poverty, chastity, obedience? And I think if we're connected with in, in relationally with God and learn to dialogue with him about that, he could somewhat show us. And I think the more and more we can be connected with loving God above all things, the more we could see these lesser realities mm-hmm. of, of those things which we have too much of or too little of or what, things we may, may not be doing in right measure or right order. But, but it's when we love God above all things, part of that gifting is where he directs our minds toward truly what will be the right measure and things mm-hmm. of how to love and what to love. So that poorness is going to help us let go. That love is what inspires us to choose to live poorly. You know, I think of, you know, the beatitude. I mean, reading them from Luke, blessed are the poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Why is it? Because you've detached, you've gotten rid of the superfluous elements so that here I am. It's me before Christ in the kingdom of God. And that kingdom of God, it can be here and now. You're listening to Trending with Timory. That's Dr. Philip Chavez. Yeah, it's well said. And I, I just think, again, that in charity, charity is, is somewhat of that, that highest love. Again, we love a God above all things, and we love it for his sake and not our sake. I mean, and this is somewhat very, very hard is to love God, not because he's going to get us to heaven someday or that he's going to be our celestial Santa Claus, you know, loving him for ourselves, but truly loving him for his sake and his good. Then we'll will what he wills and we'll want what he wants. And so in that sense, the soul becomes the most surrendered, right, mm-hmm. to God and to the things of God, to God's concerns, to the way that God does things, to, to what really God wants in our lives. Mm-hmm. So the, the second one, when we talk about the three councils of the church, is chastity. You know, sometimes we think that, oh, these are just for priests and religious, poverty, chastity, and obedience. No, this is for all of us. That's right. So we already talked about becoming poor. What do we need to detach from? What superfluous things do we need to let go of? And you guys pray about this. What is it? What is it that you are so blind to? You don't even see you need to let go of. But then two, chastity. How are we being faithful to our vocation? Because chastity is ultimately about faithfulness to our vocation. Whatever That's state right. in life you're in, sure. you're called to be integrated in your sexuality. So That's if you're right. single, you know, you're not engaging in pornography, you know, having a premarital sex, any of these things. If you're married, you know, exclusively your spouse and with respect to your spouse and it being an act of love. You know, if you're a priest or a religious, you are again just like the single person. A sense, but you are looking past the sexual desire into recognizing I'm giving myself up fully to Christ, despite having right these natural desires of the human person. 
That's right. And so in the case of chassis, it's the right regulation of the sex drive. You know, it's interesting, Timory, um, on, on a practical order to do that, it's, it's true you must learn the commandments to keep a prayer life. But, you know, as in my working with men, too, I highly advocate in, this, in, in a journey of chastity and a journey of chaste love, it's good to be accountable to a mentor. Mm. And I'm not talking about just a, just a priest who hears you out for confession. I mean, a mentor by which you can actually share what's going on in your life, obviously in right order, but to share what's going on in your life. Because, you know, this this is the virtue. Well, in some way, this virtue is very, I don't want to use the word tricky, but it, it has it has various dynamics which are hard to follow and hard to oftentimes see clearly for mm-hmm. all people. And so so I find generally, and I say this to men because I work with men, is that is that it's important to have a mentor when, when it comes to dealing and living and um, embracing a chaste life. I think that this is really important because I'm seeing more and more, even in my own ministry, especially with young people when I'm speaking, both men and women, high school, college, there are lots of questions they have about sexuality, about struggles within sexuality, about what real guidelines are, about what sex is made for that they're not talking about. And then suddenly they come for some sort of event and they hear, wow, other people are curious. Other people have the same questions. We need to talk about them, but we need that mentorship of people who are well-formed that's to right. help guide us through this. That's right. One one element in, in chaste character development is that, you know, at the appropriate ages, one have in some way ongoing instruction, dialogue about the various dynamics and the various things that arise. And so what happens is the reason why a lot of these times these chassis talks are very popular or very engaging is because... In some way, you find yourself, maybe not necessarily for the first time, but in a very isolated time where these kids are getting feedback on things which really disturb their souls, mm-hmm. right, or which touch their souls or, you know, they're, they're in quandary about. And so you're, you're demystifying many things and many elements, so they're, they're very, very grateful. But for this reason, it's, it, it, well, it just points to the reality that, that a lot of mentoring is needed in the journey in the, of living a chaste life. You're listening to Trending with Timory. That is Dr. Philip Chavez of the Men's Academy here with me today. Let's talk about this last one of the Third Council, the church obedience. So chastity from the perspective of love, it makes us free to love, free to love, given our vocation to be faithful to our vocation, because our whole theme is love today. Obedience is an act of love. It's an act of trust in God, our Father. And I think this is the one we have to begin to take those steps and following our Lord that is so important in our lives. Because we like to make a plan. We like to have everything laid out. And obedience is trusting in his providence as well. That's right. Well, I think there's a number of dynamics in obedience, not just trusting in his providence, but there's a part of, um, and, and learning his commandments and following them the best we can. Part of obedience is certainly being obedient to, to God, but obedient, being obedient to those he, he, he puts around our lives and being obedient maybe as we're talking to your mentors or whatnot. But two, obedience too, um, it comes in its perfection when we're engaged in a life of prayer where we could speak with God and he does have his own way of speaking to us in prayer. Mm-hmm. And so part of the obedience and part of what it is to follow a father and to be in, in company with him, or rather to be obedient with him, is to be in company with him, to, to walk with him. And that's what he wants us to do more than anything. He knows we're going to fall. He, he's going to be, hopefully, he will be there when we get up, but he wants us to walk with him. So being obedient to God, being obedient to our vocation, really in many ways means to be obedient 
be obedient to walking with God in a journey, conscientious of his guiding in our listening. And so that obedience requires becoming like a little child again. That's why That's right. when we hear all of those read and readings throughout the year of Christ telling his apostles to become like little children, we need to take that to heart of little children are called to be obedient. And we may forget that in today's modern culture. But there's this rounding off, this formation of the character that needs to occur. Thanks for being with us. You can learn more about Dr. Philip Chavez at themensacademy.org, where you can get connected with his podcasts, books, and many of his resources. Also, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, you can head over to relevantradio.com, head over to the contact page, and leave me a message.